Welcome to Home Education Matters, the weekly podcast supporting you on your home education journey. Home Education Matters and today I'm joined by Jodie Foster who is an author, a mother and a fitness instructor. I think I've got that about right and we are going to be talking today about encouraging your child to write whether that's writing short stories or writing for assignments or essays or anything like that. It's all about getting your child to put pen to paper or finger to keyboard and really getting instilling in them a love of writing. And a lot of children have a kind of a slight fear of writing, I think, or perhaps a reticence to do it, particularly at a certain age. Uh, anything from around sort of six to nine, I think children can be a bit nervous about writing. And so we're going to be looking at how you can in child, uh, how you can encourage your child to love writing. Okay, so hello, Jodie. Thank you so much for joining us today. Do tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you for inviting me. So yes, my name is Jodie Foster. I often get mistaken for the little Hollywood actress, but no, that's not me. <laughs> I am a former school psychologist. Um, So I used to work in the education system here in the UK and overseas and do consultancy for other ministries of education. And I had been doing that for many, many years. And I lost a lot of heart with the job because of how the education system is evolving and de-evolving. And it became very frustrated. I became very frustrated with the education system as itself. And I transitioned from being a school psychologist into being a self-employed fitness instructor so that I could sort of blend my career around my child so that I could do what flexi-schooling. So my child does go to school, but she spends some time at home doing some home education with myself as well. So my experience of being at school as well, I'm, I'm dyslexic. Uh, the school environment environment did not suit me. Um, we didn't know what dyslexia was 50, year, 50 years ago. And so I struggled at school and I struggled with the whole school environment. And I left school without any GCSEs. I didn't actually do my GCSE exams or A-levels yet. And dyslexic, yet I managed to become a school psychologist. So I would really had a very good start to life in that set me up to be able to understand where a lot of children who were struggling with behavior for learning in school were coming from so having kind of had that insight and been able to understand that and work with the children but the education system hadn't caught up with that yet and they have maybe have a still still have a long way to go shall we say so that's that's my background so um you know child and child that struggled in school went on to be a school psychologist became disheartened with the education system and changed my um career to fit more around my child and and my own lifestyle as well and where did writing children's books come in well here's a funny story now um i've worked like i say i worked with children for for, for many, many years in, in, in different capacities. And one thing um, that I always loved to do with the children when I'm trying to work with a child is to have a book to focus on. So 
it kind of takes, it would take away that kind of pressure of face-to-face. When you're working with a child and you're there to do an assessment and there to observe, sort of sitting face-to-face is is quite intense. So I would reach for um, books so that we weren't looking face-on at each other. We'd have something to focus on. And we use the books and we would use a lot of picture books. A lot of younger children I work with, mainly primary school. We would use picture books so that it would encourage us to have a conversation around the pictures. Or we would have a story book with words and we would elaborate on the story, like discuss alternative endings or not turn the page and discuss, oh, what do you think is going to happen next? And using the book to kind of break down that barrier to engage with the children really made me realize how powerful books can be at engaging children in all kinds of things and breaking down barriers with children. And I learned a lot through those observations of what children loved about books, you know, paying attention to what things they engaged with, what kind of sparked imagination or thought, what made them laugh, what made them question, what made them think, what made them discuss about it. And I just sort of over the years, I kind of engaged all these reactions and interactions from children, what they loved about books. And I thought I would try to do a book myself based on what the children had taught me about what they love about books. And that's where the crocodile's belly came from. It did. It did come from that. Yes. I mean, um, there's a quite a funny story about the time that I actually wrote that, um, which I'm sort of happy, you know, happy to share with you, share with you on how that actually book came about. So I was actually working in a behavior. Uh, they used to call it a behavior unit. Horrible, horrible phrase with um, some teenage boys who they didn't um, cope very well with the school environment, as it were. And they would often just disappear from 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 the class from time to time and not come back. And anyway, one particular morning, I was having a, a we'd had a morning that the kids had had actually wanted to do something on Greek mythology. So I put a lot of work into prepping this Greek Greek mythology, and I'd gone out to my car at the morning break to go and get some of the more of the resources, and my car had been broken into. It was quite a rough area that where this um, behavior unit was. My car had been broken into and they'd actually um, taken my car stereo. So I, 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 I was quite annoyed about this. And I went back and I, I told the, the lads, because it was about six or seven boys. And I said, look, you know, car's been broken into. I'm not very happy. So just let's just focus and let's take my mind off it. And we did that. And then at lunchtime, the, they went off. And they never came back after that lunch. They were gone for ages. And I was so so as not to get annoyed and work myself up about them not coming back to do this lesson that they'd asked for on Greek mythology. I started putting pen to paper. So I started thinking about all the things that I'd learned from children about books. And I just started doodling and it just kind of came to me. Now, this was 20 years ago. And um, it just it just sort of came from nowhere, the crocodile's belly. But with all these things in mind that I knew that children liked about books. Anyway, um, a bit later on that afternoon, the boys all came bouncing back through the door of the classroom. And I just stuffed the paper that I'd written the crocodile's belly on just into my book. And I was about to start um, giving the boys a bit of, bit of a scolding about being late back from lunch and um 
they just stood there and they kind of took it on the chin. And then one of them just from behind his back, he put my car stereo on the desk in front of me. <laughs> and they just said, we got it back for you, miss. Oh, that's just sweet. So I was, I, I kind of looked at it for a moment and I looked at the boys and one of them just said, because it was quite a rough area, one of them said to me, um, your car's going to be safe around here from now on, Miss Miss Jodie. Protected. And, um, very protected. And, and as, as he said it, I kind of looked down and he, he had some scuffed knuckles. <laughs> and um, I go, okay. So I, I kind of gave them, I realised what had gone on. So I kind of gave them all a bit of a half smile and I said, um, right, okay, then, well, we've got some learning to get on with and um, we're going to crack on with that so that we get you some education so that when you grow up, you don't have to go and steal car stereos for a living like your mate with a black eye. <laughs> it was quite obvious, <laughs> obvious what happened. So, um, so yes, yeah, so it was in those few hours that they just disappeared on me that I actually wrote the book, but with all the um, thoughts in mind that I'd learned from kids of many years when I was engaging them so interesting story how that came about I think the story of the of the PRU is actually worthy of of having a book in its own right isn't it <laughs> it might well be yeah it's such a lovely story so while you're Thank introducing you. yourself I, I I always take notes when I interview anyone for this podcast and I took so many notes when you were introducing yourself because so many things you said were, were, I really wanted to follow up on. Yeah, they were really, okay. really kind of juicy. So one thing you mentioned was that you flexi school. Now, for most home educators, that is like the holy grail <laughs> because <laughs> it's actually quite really difficult to achieve normally because you have to agree it with the local school and most of them don't like it so how did you go about sort of arranging that is that something that your school generally does or was it just a kind of one-off for you it's not something that the school um generally does it actually started in um in in primary school now we had a i, I won't go into into the person we had an incident um at the school that involved a teacher and my daughter and it had quite a negative impact on her and it's it made it very difficult for her to sustain a good attendance in school and she developed a bit, a bit of anxiety about it. So she was off school an awful lot anyway. So, I mean, it, it this didn't happen overnight, you have to understand. Um, it was a lot of um, a lot of back and forth with the school, a lot of meetings um, and you know, the occasions where I had to get very upset with the school because the school were promising to put things in place and then they wouldn't happen. So they gave the schools gave me quite a bit of ammunition to fight for this, really, through their failings. Um, so it's something that I like I say, it's it took quite a few years to get in place. And the school, you know, had a catalogue of events of failure that we managed to get this. So it was no easy task, um, let me let me tell you. Um, I mean, she's in secondary school now and they it's very quite clear that they can't meet some of her um, needs when it comes to anxiety, purely because of the physical environment of the school, the nature of the school. It's very, very busy. There's times when the school's quite hectic. So we, and again, lockdown helped this because you know the, the, you know being able to go online and provide stuff as well so 
it's been it's been a hard journey. It's something I've had to fight to fight fight for. But with the history there, I've been able to justify saying this is this is what we're going to do. This is that this is this is the flexi schooling and the school have I've had to say that you know we kind of think this is it. So otherwise, it's just going to be loads of unauthorized absences, etc. Um, and you know, I kind of had to sell it to them as well that it it makes their you know attendance records etc. look better if we haven't got all these you know, at, at constant absences. So she's, so to them, she's in school, but at home, she's in education, but at, at, at home. So she's in three days a week, um, home for two. Sometimes that's the in, in reverse, depending in what's going on. Um, but her dad is a, 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 a teacher as well. And I've obviously got my background in, in education. So we managed to we managed to work it between us and she's become quite a good independent learner as well over time. So yeah, it is the Holy grail. Um, but it's, um, yes, I had to climb a few mountains and, and, um, crawl through some brambles to get there. Well, good for you because I mean, it's, it's rare enough to, to find flexi schooling at primary, but flexi schooling at secondary level is, it really is, is unusual. So that's, that's wonderful that you've managed to get that to work for you. One thing you also mentioned in your little introduction was that you felt that you left educational psychology because you felt that the educational system was de-evolving, which I'm guessing you mean was kind of going backwards. I wondered if you could sort of explain what you were finding there when it comes to the education system. I think given that there we have a, a bigger awareness of some of the challenges that children face um, in terms of learning difficulties, different learning styles and different behavioral challenges, it's evolved in terms of that awareness and that understanding that it has to be uh, addressed. But they haven't there while they've they kind of accepted it and there's things in place i think sometimes there is isn't the resources there becomes frustrating what becomes frustrating is that money has definitely become a factor and that, i think that's certainly the case where um, schools have become academies now so that that's become a, a restriction but whilst they seem to have this light bulb of what's gone on and yes we have all these things that we need to change and we need to diversify we need to incorporate we need to cater for i think they're not always going about it the right way now what's driving that is sometimes money is a lack of resources and i think as well this try and think of how to explain it there's a lot of fear base I think in schools, sort of people are they're 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 a little bit too afraid to to tell the truth, mm -hmm. a little bit too afraid that makes them be a bit more um, politically correct driven, and there's just and Ofsted, I think that's um, something that has become you know the idea of Ofsted when it first started seemed to be something that was going to cause the education system to evolve but I, I believe it's crippling it's becoming crippling now there's so much pressure under teachers for these Ofsted reports that the focus is all going on to too many different things um, that do not involve what really happens deep down in the core in the classroom with the kids and engaging kids so 
you know, they, they may see it as evolving that we want all this paper trail, we want all this backup, we want all these documents and all these tick boxes. And it's just less and less in time with 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 the children sort of hands on. You know, everything is the focus is more on recording what's done than actually the quality of what's being done. Yeah, I remember very distinctly when I was a teacher, very briefly, that um, Ofsted would give you a very small amount of notice before they came in. It was normally about a week, I think, a bit less. And uh, we were given our, I was a trainee teacher at the time, and we were given notice that Ofsted were coming in. And I was in a very small department because I was in the RE and philosophy department, which is never a very largely populated department. (laughs) And so there were three of us. And um, the two teachers and myself the trainee teacher we spent the next four days manufacturing lesson plans schemes of work for the last year um that we had not been using because obviously as teachers you invariably don't actually use that kind of very formulaic kind of approach and if you do it's quite limiting and so we spent a large amount of time which we should have been spending on doing other things uh you know creating these documents that apparently we had been using for the last year uh, in order just to provide the Ofsted person with a huge amount of paperwork they then spent the Ofsted, I remember very distinctly, spent most of the time looking through paperwork. They came into like maybe, I think they came into my lesson briefly. They came into another lesson reasonably briefly. And then that was it. It was all about the paperwork. And, and you just yeah. thought, like, how is that about the teaching? I mean, we could be writing anything on the paperwork and, in fact, had been writing anything on the paperwork. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I could complain about the education system for a while, but uh, one thing I wanted to to talk about was the role of writing in the education system. Because um, as I say, I'm a teacher, but I'm a secondary teacher. And, or oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. I was a secondary teacher. I'm obviously now a home educator. And one thing I, one thing I felt from my limited experience of primary was that right, the approach to writing in schools um, made it feel very chore-based in as much as it, they would teach you the handwriting and then writing became kind of an exercise in being able to um, sit at a desk quietly and answer questions on a sheet of paper. And the creative side seemed to be really lacking. And I don't know what it's like now because this is this was a long time ago. But I wondered if you felt that there was a difference in the way schools approach writing to how you would like uh, sort of children to be able to approach writing. Yeah, I mean, I see, I see as encourage like children writing. It's a way to foster creativity, and that's what writing really is to me. It's about creativity, and in 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 schools, there's a lot of structure to the writing. They co- they kind of don't allow carefree abandonment, if you like. You know, they have an object an objective that they want, and they kind of want to guide children a little bit more in what they want to see on the paper rather than just sort of like fostering creativity and so if i if i'm if i'm teaching writing or if i'm fostering um creativity should i say rather than than teaching writing um look i want to i want to encompass all the things that um writing can achieve. I mean, it, it helps improve communication skills and it helps to develop a love for learning. And that all, all that kind of did that, that creativity, that communication skills, that love for learning all disappears when you try to um, channel the writing too much rather than 
you know, one thing when, I, when I'm teaching my, my daughter, I might give her a really bizarre, random title and I say, go for it, whatever. What do you want to do? And, I'd, and I'd, that's one thing that we use as well. I don't know if you've heard of the story cubes, little yeah. dice with lots of pictures. So use, they're, they're great for creating writings, story cubes, because, you know, if you really want to, go, you know, to have some sort of control over it or seem like you have, the story cubes, they just let lets the children just be as bizarre and crazy as, as they want to be. So, um. Yeah, and and also as well, you know, when you see typically a, a lesson in in writing, it's it's a pencil and paper or pen and paper, and I would encourage to you to, when you're trying to encourage children to writing, would be to give them writing materials goes beyond pen and paper. You know, colourful pens, stickers, different colour markers, highlighters, um, old old magazines and scissors, so they can see pictures and they can cut them out and stick them in to create all that image imagery. You know, it really it should be that kind of like you know carefree abandonment, just creative, just absolutely un unstructured, just to initially create that um imagination and let that imagination run wild you can refine it later you know but get that love of putting something on paper it doesn't have to be a pen I think one thing that I learned when I was when my children were a bit younger and I was home educating them and probably the the sort of the biggest light bulb moment I had was when I separated off creative writing from spelling handwriting grammar and previously what I'd been doing is they'd be writing something the content was fabulous and I would then go through not exactly with a red pen but I would go through and I'd be like oh by the way that's not spelt right and oh you know you need to like change those words around and and Mm -hmm. then I think I read somewhere that you shouldn't do that and as the minute I stopped that they're about six and seven writing I, I would basically say you know a bit like with the story cubes we would have like a little weird prompt and then they would write something and I would say it doesn't matter about like anything just write just like let your imagination go yeah exactly and then other times it would be like this is now spelling right in actual fact we did very few spelling lessons I have to say but I always separated off so that anything creative I would read the story for what it was and I wouldn't think oh, that's spelt wrong or, oh, you know, your handwriting's a bit messy. And I found that removing that and just engaging purely with the content helped so much to motivate my children when they were when they were writing stories. I think so, too. I mean, it's, you know, to 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 write well, you have to be creative and you have to have an imagination. And if you're that's the first thing that you need to to grow in, 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 a, in a child's mind is that love that imagination that creativity so if you if you if you implement the you know that you know comma goes here the full steps go here you leave your space after the full start everything so if you if you that 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 can that can kill a passion and when you think about it, if you know when you're when you're thinking about writing a book when you're thinking about writing a story you don't start with where are the full stops going to go where are the paragraphs <laughs> going to go you start with the idea you start with the story the imagination the characters so that's how i think writing should be naturally start with that you know and and, and you, you may get some some young writers who are like i was dyslexic and you know, you get somebody, somebody else could do it, you know, could, could do that later on. It's get that, that idea, you know, that, that's what we want first. We want the ideas, we want the love, we want the imagination and we want, we want that story. 
that the, 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 the grammar and the punctuation is the last bit. Because when you think about it, when you write a book, what's the last thing you do? It goes to the editor for proofing. It doesn't go to the editor first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I was going to ask you about that because as, as a sort of dyslexic writer, do you find that the spelling and grammar is something that you you leave for somebody else to do? Or is that something that actually you found that because you were writing so much when you were younger and you loved the process, that actually that came as a kind, you built your skills up in, in grammar and spelling as well? Yeah, that came, I mean, that's, I'm still not fantastic at it. You know, I did, I did get, um, you know, I did have it um, proofread uh, a couple by a couple of, a couple of other people before it went to publicate publication, but it is, you know, it's not always, it's not going to be something that is my forte. So do, do I want to understand it? Of course I do. Do I want to learn it? Of course I, you know, of course I have, but do I feel guilty for, at the, at the, you know, at the very end for somebody else coming in and, and, and doing it? No, no. I, and I guess, I, I guess a good analogy for this would be, um, you know, a racing car driver. They understand how a car works. They could change a tire if they wanted to, but their job is to get from that start line to that finish line as best they can. Some, you know, and some, you know, they pull in and let somebody else, they know how to do it. They could do it if they needed to. But, you know, you can't be all things. And it's okay to be that way. Some people, when they write their books, they're not great artists. So they'll get somebody in to do do the illustrations. I, and I think we need to lose that guilt about that. You know, I think there's that, oh, you're a writer. You must be really good at, at writing and grammar and, and spell checking. Not particularly. Mm -hmm. I come up with the ideas. I get them down on paper. Somebody else might refine it. I don't feel bad about that. I'm okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. And and one thing I I've I've found because my daughter is dyslexic is that I I had a kind of pre preconception that if you were dyslexic, you would just not really enjoy writing. But actually, as soon as we went from using pen and paper to, to using a laptop, which was about three years ago, once we made that switch, she absolutely loves writing. And actually this summer she's writing, she's writing a short story completely off her own bat. She just wanted to write a short story. And, and I found that because she's dyslexic, she has so much creativity, so much, so much creative thought that in actual fact, I think in lots of ways, when we think about dyslexia and writing, we don't tend to see them as bedfellows, but actually I think they really are because you're yeah. so creative when you're dyslexic that all these ideas and also, I mean, I don't, every dyslexic person is different, obviously, but I found that dyslexic people are able to see amazing, create amazing patterns. They're able to link ideas in ways that non-dyslexic people can't. And so they go from this to that, to that, to that. And you're like, how did you get there? And actually that's wonderful in a story, isn't it? It is. And, you know, and you think about it, you think about if somebody who's fantastic at um, just just writing words all you know, all all the correct grammar and punctuation, um, technically correct. Who's the better story writer, the person with all that imagination that can make all those connections or the person that just knows where to put the full stops in the right place and gets all the little green ticks from the teacher? You know, dyslexics are natural born storytellers. Somebody else, let the, let, the, let the person who's really good at all the grammar and the punctuation, <laughs> let them sort of, you know, write, write it or correct it if they need to. But no, I mean, in my experience of working with um, children with, dys with dyslexia and my own dyslexia, and I work with a lot of professionals in business as well, and the best business um, professionals and consultants that I work with, they're all dyslexic and their imagination is amazing. 
Yeah, and I, I always say to my daughter, I always say that when she was diagnosed as dyslexic, when she was like about seven, I said, you know what, you know, it's it's lucky that you're home educated because the school system is not designed well for dyslexic people. However, life is designed brilliantly for dyslexic people because what you know you can really fly once you're out of the school system but the school system itself is quite difficult if you're neurodiverse in any way Um, and particularly I think if you're dyslexic because so much of it is about time pressure and getting your thoughts down onto paper so that's one thing I wanted to ask you because my daughter recently did the English language GCSE Uh, she did Mm -hmm. it this last summer and she's very very good at writing I mean, she's exceptionally good at writing. That's why she wants to write her short stories and she's very creative. And part of the the second paper is creative writing. And there's narrative writing or there's, there's descriptive writing. Now, she obviously wanted to do the narrative writing because for her, she writes stories just for fun. She makes them up in her head. She, you know, that's what she's always done. Um, but when we were looking at the narrative writing mark schemes, they, it was extremely prescriptive about what you could and couldn't write about in in the creative writing task. So, for example, you weren't really allowed to write about zombies. I think they decided that because most children like to write about zombies. So they decided <laughs> you're not allowed to write about zombies. I don't know how or why somebody made that decision. But there were all sorts of rules that were embedded into the creative writing task. Now, as an examiner myself, I understand that it is that you have to quantify what you're marking, you know, you, you have to be able to give it marks. But I I found that the, having not had any exposure to the school system, I was amazed by how prescriptive, and like you said, channeled, the creative writing tasks were, when I would have thought it's the exact arena where you want no parameters, and you want to allow the child really just to kind of go nuts imaginatively. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, it's the, com- it, it, you know, it's, I mean, there is should take away the label of creative writing, <laughs> not use the word creative. Writing to task. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Call it something yeah. else. Call it what it is. Like, I mean, for yeah. example, they have some writing tasks, which are things like writing, you know, writing a letter, writing a speech, those kind of things. And there are there are certain uh, parameters to those. Although, yeah, again, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm not quite sure why. Perhaps for letter writing, you need to know some of the etiquette of it. But, but um, for when it comes to purely creative writing, in the end, she went for the descriptive writing task, just because it was a bit more open ended. When you're thinking about um, people listening to this who home educate their child or maybe flexi school if they're lucky as well, like you. Although <laughs> I keep saying if they're lucky, it's just because I've home educated now for. 17 years and so for me the prospect that they could have gone into school for a couple of days a week is actually kind of quite a nice one Um, (laughs) but of course for some people uh, that you know they want to home educate all the time and that's brilliant but for people who are listening to this who are home educating their child and they really want to foster this love of writing in their child what sort of top tips would you give them uh, for approaching writing as a home educator? I would I would say uh, as a parent lead by example so show show them that you love writing. You can you can journal. You can write your own stories. You can you could um, create a family blog. So when kids see, when they see that their parents are engaged in in writing, and then they're more inspired to do the same. Writing starts with reading. So you know, reading together is essential to complement writing. 
and there's you know there's such a variety of books that you can that you can read from so a fiction non-fiction poetry it, it's endless so just discuss the stories and the characters and encourage your children to share what they think about their book and their ideas and a good a good way as well um which i did with my own daughter i used to do with um kids in education as well was i would finish about i would pre-read a book and a short book and i would find a a, a great spot to end where you don't quite know where the ending is going to go and i'd finish the book there mm-hmm. and if that meant i would write for them or if we re- recorded it on a, on a voice recorder or if we just acted it out in role play we'd create different endings now, sometimes endings didn't always end <laughs> and it would go on and on and on, but it didn't matter. It was just about getting them to engage in creating a story, whether they did it in role play, whether they did it with pictures, whether they did it in writing, whether they just told you and you just had a discussion about it. That for me was always my favorite and most productive way of engaging children in creating a story is to start them off get them into the flow of a really imaginative book that had options for the ending potentially and get them to create those en- endings in whatever way they wanted to, to 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 show that to you we loved doing alternate endings when my children were slightly younger we used to do alternate endings to tv programs and films we would do we would do uh rewritings of like classic fairy tales I mean, and actually actually we would do quite a lot of feminist and modern rewritings of old of old of old kind of fairy tales and then that became a thing that i would see in amazon and i'd be like i really should have we should have we should have sold these when we were doing them um you mentioned there about sort of uh, acting it out and using visuals and things like that how important is it to for the child to actually be doing the writing like the pen on paper writing and is that something that you would always want to incorporate at some level or is that not as important as the imagination I th- I th- it is something that you that I would I I personally would want to incorporate, but like I said um, before, I I w- wouldn't want that to stifle the 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 the, the create the creativity. And I, I remember one um, young boy that I worked with uh, when I was in the Cayman Islands, and he was autistic, and he actually was frightened of putting the the the, the pen the pen to paper. Um, but the, the teachers, I mean, you know, one of one teacher in particular insisted that we have to get him to learn to write. And, and the, you know, the emotional state this this child would get in at, at, at the thought of it. Um, so we did actually bring in some software for him where he could tell his story and it would write for him as as he spoke. Would we would we like to, would like to have got, got him writing? Yes. Was it ever going to happen? No. But I think where where we can where we can develop this where where we can incorporate writing yes we we do want to do this we want to get children over that fear and be able to do it because it's a skill but we don't want it to be a skill that um dampens and puts the fireworks out at the begin at, at the beginning so yes i'm always good would say go and encourage encourage that there might be extreme cases like the one i gave you where it's never going to happen but yes we want them putting putting pen to paper my, my, you know, that's 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 my thought. I'm a little bit old school, and I think kids have forgotten how to write. Great at texting, <laughs> the they thumbs. <laughs> yeah, great at texting. But I do think it's a bit of a dying, a bit dying skill. And I do. Maybe I'm just. Maybe it's my age. Maybe I'm a bit old fashioned. But um, yeah. But I know I used to have. I used to have the fear of putting pen to paper when I was a kid, and that fear 
were that you know I, I didn't get over that fear very well at school but I got over it later on and I'm glad I did talking from experience I'm glad I did that put that pen paper I've not got the best handwriting doesn't matter um but yeah we do, do want to try and encourage them to do that ultimately and if the, if it's just too much what why, why why put the pressure why put the pressure on if it's too much I think a lot of it is sort of rooted in a kind of um a mixture of perfectionism uh, with children not liking to make mistakes pen on paper because there's something kind of indelible about it they don't like yeah. having to cross it out and things like that and also I know that a lot of children have that kind of blank paper fear you know where nothing's yes. written on it yet and they just don't know how to start and I was wondering if you have any advice for parents of children who just sort of sit there with a pen and paper and then they just sit there and they don't really know how to sort of go about even starting writing Again, get start start the discussion with the ideas and just play 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 them out and um you know re re record them. I mean, I I might I might write it down when I was when I was working in the schools. I might write it down for them. We've you know we've all got our phones. We can record it and then go back so you can role play. You can capture it on video and then that's easy then because then you've you've almost created your script verbally or visually and then that makes it easier to then put it down on paper but to sometimes just put that paper in front of them that can create a writer's block it's like oh it can be a bit daunting blank paper pen pressure so pop it away do a little bit of role play a bit of acting a bit of talking go read another book like you made the great idea about watching the the movie and whatever medium you use to record that that's easy then to transfer that onto the paper rather than paper produce yeah I completely agree and one thing I found was that uh, as soon as I made that switch like I say from from my daughter writing her ideas out to being able to voice record them or or write type them up on a laptop mm. I found that she was much freer in her expression and I think a lot of that was because she could go back and delete go back and delete without having to sort of use spell check and things like that and yeah. and she felt much more empowered in the writing process because of those tools that you don't maybe necessarily have when it's pen to paper one thing yeah. I also found was that when it comes to that sense of kind of perfectionism where they're worried about making a mistake and crossing it out they don't want it to look messy is that I would I would sit with the children and my son was a bit inclined this way he was a bit of a perfectionist and I would sit with them and I would write as well because we invariably all try to sort of work at the same time and I would deliberately make mistakes and make a mess and doodle on my paper and rip little corners off and stuff like that to kind of mm -hmm. say it's okay it doesn't have to yeah. be like this perfect blank page and and mind mapping is a good one as well. So, you know, it, it, this is what I've, I've used as well is, you know, we might discuss a, a story or a, or a project, have a conversation about it, but they still don't know where to write. So big circle in the middle, who's your main character? And then little bits all coming coming off it. So it just looks like a, you know, a big spider map of everything. And again, that can then, you can then take that and then Tran, tran, transfer it as well so it doesn't have to be and this pressure about perfection as well and, and handwriting and I like I liked the example you gave of it's okay for it to look messy it's not the final draft doesn't it it can be anything yeah and when it comes to a child who wants to write a story for example would you say that mind mapping is a good place to start I think it can work for some children yeah, I, I think it would be definitely something that I would say try. And some children might take to that like a duck to water and some children might just not get the concept of it or they might not be ready for that concept of it. I think 
you know, I think for me when I was younger, if I, if mind mapping was a thing, I might have found, might have found that a little bit easier to do. But mind mapping, again, we all have different ways that our brains work. It may not work for a particular child, but it, it's certainly worth trying. One thing I found that helped my daughter when it comes came to writing short stories was that we did a we did a project on the hero's story, you know, that kind of classic arc that you get from, you know, that goes off on a journey, encounters, challenges, something happens, they overcome it, then there's like a little, a little kind of resolution and then a final conclusion of what have what have they learned from the journey. And we actually, when we learned this, we we then applied it to all sorts of films and books like Harry Potter's and things like that. In actual fact, almost all books are written with that arc uh, and almost all films have the, exactly the same kind of arc. Something happens and you think, oh no, and then, oh, it's all okay again. I mean, every Pixar is basically designed like this. And um, mm. once we sort of were aware of this as a structure, she found it a lot easier to structure her stories because she felt like there were, there was like um, spaces available for her to slot her ideas into so she said oh I see now they need to meet another person on the journey now they need to have the challenge and we're not sure how it's going to turn out and she found that kind of very very sort of like broad structure really helpful when she was planning her work mm-hmm. yeah and I think you touched up on something there as well is, is there's always a, a a journey like you know kids are always going to relate to humor humor is always going to work well in a book or in a story but I think when you balance that humor with heart um and inf- and infuse sort of some heart and meaning uh, meaningful lessons in in a, in a story if you, if you catch a child's reading it and then doing it because it kind of creates some emotional resonance um when you see like you say when you see a character face some challenges and o- overcome them it's can often make ever you know create relatable scenarios and then the children go oh i remember when i went through that i had something similar and again that can come that can that can go down on 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 paper or or your storyboard however they want to do it so you know it creates them relatable scenarios that young readers you know find captivating and can relate to as well one of the nicest things I've seen recently in social media is that since uh, Bridgerton has has started as that kind of modern period drama, if you know what I mean, uh, there's a lot of um, women in their 20s in particular who are really relating now to authors like Jane Austen and George Eliot. And what they're doing is they are, they are um, taking that, you know, like a dialogue or something, and then they are relating it to uh, their modern experiences and they they're invariably changing it into almost like modern language and there's a lot of memes and things on the internet at the moment about this for example the classic section in um pride and prejudice when mr darcy does the worst possible proposal by saying you know against all my better judgment i'll marry you but you know it's kind of really embarrassing for me and like frankly i don't really want to it's like the worst ever proposal in sort of literature history and a lot of a lot of young young people now are sort of approaching this from their own relatable standpoint and they're like red flags and you know all that kind of thing and and it's really lovely to see how people actually are taking something from the 1700s and they're finding it still very relatable to their lives. And mm-hmm. I think what you say there about how literature really does grip you when you relate, when you can relate to something that's happening. And I think that's one of the timeless natures, actually, of literature, isn't it? That there's always something relatable. I mean, every Dickens character is relatable. I mean, the amount of Uriah heaps I, I find myself coming across, you know, is, is, is astonishing. And I think that so much of that is, you know, 
is about how you see the world and how your lived experience can then be reflected back to you from a book. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Jodie. It's been really lovely chatting today. I know that your book, The Crocodile's Belly, is on Amazon. So okay. if anyone if anyone would like to go and buy that, I would recommend it. It's a very beautiful book. And thank you again for coming on. And congratulations on your flexi schooling, Holy Grail. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was lovely chatting today. You. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's Home Education Matters podcast. See you at the next one. Have a lovely day.